You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with two veterans of the Canadian alternatives and financial services industry about how the retail and high net worth landscape has changed and how the markets and their gyrations have made alternatives not look so alternative. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome, it's Wednesday, April 8th, and uh, it's James Braun from CASA with our Alternative Thinking podcast. We're going to be speaking with Graham Lyons from Arbutus Partners and Colin Kilgower from Kilgower Williams Capital. Let's start with uh, introductions. Maybe start with you, Graham. My career has spanned over 25 years, and in the last five years, I really found a passion in finding boutique asset managers that were undiscovered. So what started as some exchange-traded fund clients and a couple of flow-through clients has really migrated into probably 10 clients over the last five years. And James, it's been hedge funds, private equity, private debt, uh, flow through, smart beta, indexing. So Arbutus Partners has been around for five plus years. We represented some great clients. We've discovered a lot about what market likes and, and dislikes. And there's a lot of emerging managers who really want to get in front of quality advisors. And that's been my primary role. And of late, I've expanded into family offices and smaller pensions and endowments. But generally, it's the IROC advisors I grew up with over 25 years in this business. Cool. And then, uh, Colin, are you one of these emerging managers that's uh, building your business? Indeed, we are. Although um, Kilgar Williams Capital has its roots, ironically, back in the previous uh, credit crisis. Um, So now we've seemed to have come full circle. So Kilgar Williams Capital was founded really on the back of the asset-backed commercial paper meltdown in the summer of 2007. Um, We were advisors uh, and advocates for investors who essentially got stuck with all the toxic paper that melted down. And that was in the headlines for about 18 months through a a massive uh, restructuring, but that ultimately turned into about a 12-year run of managing through the ups and downs of that paper, taking us right through through to 2017. 2017, uh, we recrafted ourselves as a investment manager and launched the Kiwi Private Credit Fund, uh, which is a private credit fund focused on investing in whole loans originated by essentially fintech-based lenders, which is something we do today. So what's your investment thesis with uh, with the Kiwi Fund? We are invested in three asset classes. We do unsecured consumer finance, uh, we do small business lending, and we do secured real estate lending. The thesis is that there's essentially outsized risk, uh, uh, risk-adjusted risk return available. And one of the things we like about credit, and in particularly this type of credit, is we are very much a, a superior income, but very much a stay rich rather than a get rich fund. So one of the ways we manage risk in a credit portfolio is by having massive diversification 
diversification. So in our portfolio of literally thousands of individual loans, we have about uh, an average loan size of about twenty thousand dollars. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. You can uh, you can get that down to loan size. That's so. Sorry, the third one was was real estate lending as well. And how how is that structured to get something so small? In the case of real hmm. estate, uh, we are doing first term mortgage first lien mortgages to developers who are re- rehabilitating a property. To your point about how do you fund that if your average loan size is only twenty thousand dollars. In the marketplace lending context, you can often buy what they call fractional loans. So think of that as a syndicate, so a mini syndicate, if you will. So a lender will take that $300,000 loan and put it into, into as many pieces as pot, as necessary in order to meet everyone's you know size appetites. Interesting. So how do you adjudicate or how do you, how do you build a portfolio of this? Now it seems like there's actually a lot of moving parts in there. There, there are, um, and and we look we look at it. We have a consistent process, but it uh, we apply it differently for larger loans versus smaller loans. On the consumer loans, which tend to be smaller, um, we take advantage of the fact that there's you know a a lot of them. There's a lot of data availability, and there's a certain homogeneity in the way consumer credit behaves. So we approach the consumer model loans on a, essentially an automated model basis, whereas on the small business and the mortgage loans, because there's more idiosyncrasies in those types of credits, we look at those each of those with human eyes. But the process is largely the same regardless of the type of loan. First, we have a, um, we have a, a filter. So there's certain criteria, hard criteria that we won't um, go, go outside of. For instance, we have minimum FICO scores of 640. So we have our only prime loans. We are always first lien. There are uh, certain states we don't touch in the United States. When a loan passes those criteria, it then gets put into our models. So if you think about it conceptually, if we're buying a loan from a say, lending club, which is one of the big lenders in the US who we buy from, if they're presenting us with 100 C-rated loans, conceptually, some of those are gonna be better than others. And what our models allow us to do is to try to identify those C loans that are likely to behave better, better. And so we'll say, we'll take the top 10% today. So, and we do the same thing on uh, the small business and the mortgage loans, essentially running them through our models and trying to identify those which we think are mo- most likely to be successful loans. Wow, so you kind of get to cherry pick. So it's, a, it's like the opposite of a CDO that caused the last crisis. Yeah, and, and, and we love it for that reason. So as I mentioned earlier, so the roots of our firm are in the credit crisis. So we were deep in the bowels of all the ABCP and the CLOs and CDOs and CDO squares. And literally we managed those for 10 years um, after they had already blown up. So post restructuring. Well, thank you for your service. <laughs> thank you. Thank <laughs> you for that. I'm not sure, Ancala, with your note, with your notes, your, your loans, how they're, if they're priced more dynamically or if it's, if it's simply whatever, uh, you know, we pr- price it up to par or, or down to par, whatever it might be. So uh, how do you do with that? Valuation and private credit is a, is a, um, is a, is a, tricky uh, tricky thing although although we do do it and accounting standards dictate that we that we have to to mark our assets so it is something we do uh, I do think it's important if you are contemplating any kind of private credit investment that you get a good handle on how the manager values the book and how often they value the book and whether they're using an outside man outside um, expert to to, uh, to value the book um, at Kiwi private credit fund our practice is we value every loan, every month using an outside valuation agent. 
because of the massive data transparency we have and the historical data we have, we're able to essentially model an expected present value of every loan based on how long it's been on book, um, how delinquent it is, and, um, and the type of borrower it is, whether it's an A, B, C, D, E, or so on borrower. So we are essentially able to give a, a an expected value or present value of every loan every month. We very much take a, a no surprises approach with our investors. Oh, thanks. Maybe a broader question to Graham. Like, how do you counsel? Um, how do you how do you find advisors or explaining alternatives to their clients? Do they spring a hedge fund on them, or they they take a few years maybe to be able, to be able to gauge the sophistication of their of their clients? Uh, uh, and how do you uh, uh, like? How, how would you recommend that they they start to talk to alternatives um, to their to their clients? That's a good question. No two cases are the same, but there are trends for sure. If there's ever a springing of an i an investment idea or even a single idea, it's normally from the client, and that's where they heard it from someone else and they spring it on the advisor. That usually doesn't happen the way uh, the way my business works. I would say with advisors and explaining or even introducing alternatives, I, it's been a natural progression. It really comes out of what what didn't work as expected. And I remember in 2000 working an investment counselor, and they had global bonds and REITs in their portfolios because they had done some homework how they behave in different market cycles. So they had a, mm-hmm. a need to fix the traditional asset classes and they added a few more. But then I would think in natural progression, it's like if you live through an equity portfolio in 2000 to 2002, 08 and 09, 2015, 2016, if you're in Canada, I think those types of drawdowns would naturally make you ask your advisor or your advisor would start to think, how do I build a better portfolio? Because this idea being long only mm-hmm. fully equities isn't working. Because quite frankly, between 2000 and 2015, point to point in probably the S&P and the TSX, I don't think you made any money. Mm-hmm. In terms of adding asset classes as well, think about 08. Like gold bullion was the one thing that really held up well or an absolute return strategy I know a popular hedge fund company in Canada got a lot of money in absolute return because of what happened in 08. So it's because of our collective experience, when something breaks or is perceived to break and has therefore more risk, we all look to alternatives. I think we all have um, looked to what pensions have done as well. And that starts to get the ball rolling on where an advisor based on how they perceive the portfolio should be acting or what the client is calling and not happy about. It's usually losing more money than they thought possible. This is how we've morphed into hedge funds and other alternatives, including you know private debt, private equity, private real estate. Yeah, it's funny because when we think alternative, we it's a literal sense of what what is an alternative to what we're doing. But this is uh, when it comes to alternative investments, it seems like it really shouldn't be an alternative. It's more like just a, just something that everyone should have have in their portfolios. Uh, so uh, it seems like they're ready. Um, a few people like they'll compare their um, the instu- the retail portfolios to like a pension plan and how they're investing with their long term horizons, which are probably similar to people's RSPs. It's not it's not even when you're 65 or whatever and start start collecting. 
but you're going to be alive probably for another 20, maybe 30 years. So you have to think, think long-term there. Um, so what, uh, what, what do you think uh, is a big move to, to change your book in, to go into alternatives uh, from the advisor side? Uh, what, what kind of process do they go through? Like for speaking with your dealer and getting on side with the product approval folks and, uh, and figuring out how, which, which alternative investments, whether they are real estate or, or hedge funds or, or private lending, which ones might make sense? Like where, where do you see the, the, the process there? There's a bottom up and a top down process in all of this. An advisor may uh, be competing against an investment counselor or um, have a client who has a pension that's got some alternative strategies into it. So the advisor could start to ask internally, how do I get more exposure? Uh, they may be part of associations mm -hmm. like CASA or their CFA society, and they're learning from there. Yeah. So it'd be driven from the top down, I mean, from the bottom up. And the top down, I don't know if it's driven that way. I don't know enough to say. It's usually... Yeah, usually it comes from the... As an IA, I think it usually comes from the client and moves up to the advisor and up but and up, up further. But uh, whenever they're kind of top down, it ends up being a little bit, little bit challenged. Because the dealer says to the product supplier or sponsor, how many advisors do you have who actually want this? So it always comes back to the advisor. But mm -hmm. I, I know as the advisors go, uh, you know, Yale and Harvard started with endowments, but I don't know how many of us in Canada really followed that. It was interesting to see what Swedro was doing and smart guys running these endowments, but that's not collectively what we were thinking in Canada. I know I started to get more into alternatives when I went to a Pension Association of Canada, the PIAC, and Bob Bertram was there from Ontario Teachers. And he showed the asset mix mm -hmm. that the pension had in 1992. And it was a kaleidoscope of colors of maybe four. But then he showed it, and this was back in like 2007. It was like right. 20 or 30 colors. He goes, we're here to diversify away the systemic risk that we're not properly compensated for. We're trying to smooth out the ride because we're a defined defined benefit plan we have an obligation to our members it's not defined contribution and we'll see how the returns go no we have to honor based on formulas so we are very much in tune with how to build a better portfolio beyond 60 40 so teachers really struck me as what alternatives could be I don't think many advisors follow that. But what I think many advisors started to follow was when the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, the CPPIB in 05 mm -hmm. or 07, started to make public that they were moving away from long-only bonds and long-only stocks and started to invest in infrastructure and real estate and the 407 highway being an example. I think that became real at home to advisors to make an introduction to clients about alternative strategies based on what our Canada's pension plan was doing. But it's usually a conversation that says, there's a there's an, a, a, an institution or someone way bigger than us is doing this. And what can we bring down to our level as retail or high net worth investors and benefit from these other guidelines in Canada or around the world? I think that's how advisors slowly bring it in, but it's not an overnight thing. So maybe getting into the nitty gritty here, uh, Colin, um, is your product uh, prospectus, like these liquid else funds that are getting into everybody's hands, or 
are you offering more like a private equity vehicle or an offering memorandum fund? Um, what's your, your method of, of offering? Yeah, so we we are an offering we are offered by offering memorandum. Um, folks can talk to their advisors or they can talk to us directly. Um, we are accredited investors only. So the, and there's a variety of qualifications to be accredited, including income, including mm -hmm. net worth, including if you work in the business, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So there's many many um, uh, criteria for determining whether someone's accredited or not. But yeah, for for right now, it's we are OM based or offering memorandum based and for accredited investors only. So unfortunately, that's the restriction right now. Uh, we are looking at potentially doing a liquid alts product in the near term, um, but I'm not really ready to announce that yet. But if we do that, that'll be prospectus based and that'll be open to any investors and likely listed somewhere. Cool. Stay, watch this awesome. space. Um, well, we'll have a special podcast just to announce that. Uh, so what, what do you think of like, we've seen it lately with the, with the COVID, uh, the coronavirus crisis and such with um, how some real estate funds and lending funds lately, uh, they've gated and some are saying, well, what is this? How can you guys are, are gating? We're supposed to, we want to get our money out. And others are saying maybe that's the best thing for investors because you don't want to sell into a fire sale. Uh, Colin, what, what about your fund? Does it allow gating, and and when when might you use it, or is it or is it an issue? Sure. So, so our if you dig in deep into the bowels of our offering memorandum, you'll see that we do have the capacity to implement the gating process. Which, if folks aren't familiar with it, it's the a temporary restriction on the amount of redemptions that investors can can take out in a, in a period of time. So you see this potentially in, in in times when you have market dislocations like we're experiencing today, to essentially avoid a market panic. We have that in our documents. We have not gated redemptions. Uh, we don't intend to gate redemptions uh, anytime in the near future. Um, we, you know, like like all managers in the space, we have a bunch of investors who are nervous, who are skittish, and who, you know, some feel like they'd be more comfortable sitting in cash. And if we have investors who feel like they'd be more comfortable sitting in cash today, we're happy to help them turn their investment into cash. We do value the portfolio each month so we do we do the redemptions at the month end and it's based on whatever the month end nav is now our nav hasn't changed for close to 36 months so it's ten dollars per unit at the end of each month typically and we're hoping through the next few months with the actions we've taken that it will continue to stay at ten dollars per unit and so what's the duration of your fund like is it relatively short-term money or it sounds yeah. like it sounds like a short-term and, and spread out so that that should help but yeah, it, it's it's a very liquid fund. It, it's not as liquid as say uh, you know forty five day assets or things like that, but are the duration the contractual duration in the fund tends to be around ten or eleven months. And I say contractual um, duration because we off we have loans that would have uh, twelve month maturities. We have some loans that have thirty six month maturities. The thing with thirty six month maturities is those are tend to be the, the consumer loans. And consumers can prepay loans at any time. So when you add in the effect of prepayments and, and people who double up on their payments and things like that, the actual duration tends to be a couple months shorter than the contractual duration. So typically in the kind of nine to 11 months range. So the cash comes back very, very quickly in our fund. Um, so it's not overnight money. It's not money. It's not money market, but it's close. What about for the current crisis, Graham? Like with the uh, the COVID and everybody's doing you know, home isolation, and uh, people have to see their 
people are probably, I imagine they're seeing their clients, except maybe by Zoom. Um, and you're seeing quite a few advisors and, and talk, speaking with your issuer clients. So what's, what's the mood out there? What's it like? Is it uh, uh, end of the world sort of stuff? Or is it, this might be a, a short imp, you know, imposition? Or is there something else that, uh, that people are talking about? Well, I would say everyone's talking. Even the investors who have a discretionary and discretionary portfolio advisor, they still need to know what's going on. And so there's a lot of communication going on. People were rightly uh, concerned. Mm. Uh, I think there was some panic in the market. And then it became a question of, okay, if we have an investment policy statement, which is the emotional management tool about which asset classes and what asset mix we have and when we're <laughs> going to rebalance it, do we deviate from that? And I think there was a lot of temptation to do it, but those who stuck with their IPS have been well rewarded for originally having a plan that related to the investor's long-term goals. And as long as the client short-term issues of they haven't lost their job forever, or they haven't had some other financial effect or personal effect in their lives, usually the answer is we just got to stay the course. And this has happened a lot in 08 and 09. And those who had discipline um, saw it through. So my answer to the question really is, yeah, everyone's concerned. This is real. This is our health. This is something we've never seen and probably never thought would happen in the first yeah. world. That happened in 1918. That mm -hmm. was back then. That's the Spanish flu. How could that ever happen to us? Well, here we are. Those are life issues. And that's what advisory is all about. It's more about the human relationship and the finances and the taxes and everything else, but it's like, will I be okay? And it's the journey that the advisor helps the investor go through to realize their goals. Those are the real conversations that are happening. And I think if you have an investment policy, there's not a lot on the portfolio side to really question. And we're just going to see it through. But if you don't have an IPS, an investment policy statement, those conversations could be a lot more challenging. And on the issuer side, yeah, they're looking at the real economy. If it's in the public market and there's been dislocation mm -hmm. in stocks and say in REITs, well, is that going to affect the private real estate? Well, they're both based on the economy. So there's cognizance there of checking to see if people can pay their rent. And the private credit side, it's, you know, in our, my case, a short-term short -term marketplace loans. What's the consumer going through? Is this money they're going to get from the Canadian or U.S. government going to see them through to be able to pay the, mm -hmm. pay the loan? For business owners, are they going to be able to pay the loan? For people with real estate, how's that going to be affected? So there's very much a time for those who run strategies to prove that they fully understand what they run. And how long do you think this is going to go on, uh, Graham? Is it going to be a couple years like this or shorter or what, what, what are you hearing there? <laughs> I'll, all I will, all I believe is that what we are doing now by sheltering in place and social distancing, some of these habits will last. Maybe it's how we're going to mm -hmm. shop online or how I'm going to do more video calls with people. Uh, there's attributes of what we're all doing, no matter who we are, that are not just going to go away. There's always a change out of every pain. And if sheltering in place is, is painful, I, I know I really want to be around more people in a real office, but I think there'll be some things that come <laughs> out of this. There's like, wow, maybe it's less consumption. 
I just don't know when it's going to end. I think we have smart people working on it. And there will be things that we come out and go, wow, that was what started it. We have a stay at home. That's when that industry or niche started to become more popular. Yeah, because in the 2008 crisis, they came up with Uber and so many other companies that, uh, I mean, some of them failed, obviously, too. But there's, there's quite a few that came out of that. And they're the whole gig economy, I think, because people, so many people lost their jobs. So maybe there's something that will come out of here um, if it's if it's just people starting to buy online or do more Zooms and that sort of thing. Because before it was just, it seemed silly to, you know, do a FaceTime with, with, their, with a client or with somebody because just wasn't what you did, but now you kind of crave that. So, and <laughs> uh, maybe it's the same sort of question to call him. Uh, what's uh, you said before, like you have um, certain States that you may not, may not uh, lend into um, interested, which ones and why, but uh, has that changed? Or is there any opportunities now that before you six months ago, you thought, no way we're going to put more into something. And now that that looks like a place to, uh, uh, to place new money. And then what would you say to investors? We tend to just generally, there are certain states that have higher unemployment rates than others. Um, and so unemployment is a is an early indicator of you know, potential distress in the consumer markets. So we tend to watch unemployment. And if if a state's unemployment rate is, is at the higher end, we'll turn that state off. Um, in terms of opportunities going forward and areas going forward um you know it's it's uh, this is new a new period for all of us um you know all those of us on the call have been through at least one credit crisis by our virtue of our ages um so we've seen this we've seen some of this before but we haven't seen this before um and so we're we're we like everybody else are working our way through it what we've seen though and what we've been able to gather from our experience is there has been an overselling in credit markets. Uh, again, I'm, I, I can't, right. it's probably true in equity markets, but I don't follow equities. Um, so there's been an overselling. So in the, you know, the panic that we've seen over the last two weeks, um, spreads have widened out significantly. Some of that legitimately, you know, there has been some deterioration in credit quality. Mm-hmm. Some of that is liquidity driven. And we've seen liquidity dry up much more rapidly than we've seen credit being impaired. And this is also what we did see in 2007, 2008. We saw, you know, the asset commercial paper market in Canada didn't freeze up because fundamentally the credit was bad. It it dried up because the liquidity dried up uh, on one Friday in August, 2007. This is different from that, but we are seeing very pronounced effects of liquidity. So where I, we see the opportunities are for investors who have some patient capital, who have liquidity, and can withstand, you know, and have the, the stomach or the headspace to withstand kind of short-term market fluctuations in pricing. If you can take a view that says, I'm looking 18, 24, 36 months out, and I'm willing to kind of ride the roller coaster, we believe there's going to be excellent opportunities for credit investing, essentially picking up um, uh, notes, loans, bonds in a secondary market at, you know, liquidity depressed prices. Stuff. Uh, you mentioned unemployment. How, I guess that's changing day by day with uh, with everybody heading to uh, you know, the, the employment office or the unemployment office, whatever it might be called today. So how is, have the, but have, but have the states that you generally steer clear of, are they perennial, perennially, 
uh, lesser, less employed, or is it, uh, or is that that starting to change? Yeah, the, the the ones that we've avoided are the ones that you know, you, some people would call them flyover states, but they're <laughs> states that I've driven through most of them yeah. anyway, <laughs> rather than flyover. Um, and and they they tend to have higher levels of unemployment. They have lower you know me, median incomes, um, and you know one of the benefits for us of predominantly being a U.S. investor is you're spoiled for choice. There is a lot of places to invest money in the U.S. There's, yeah. there's 50 states. There's lots. Of, there's millions of people. Um, so if you're spoiled for choice, you might as well again. We because we manage a stay rich rather than a get rich fund. It's let's let's make sure we're making our investors stay rich rather than trying to get rich on some kind of fly by night venture. Um, in terms of, I think you also asked about what, where is employment going, or unemployment going now? Have we seen any changes on that? Obviously, we were just we're kind of less than a month into this. Um, our portfolio has performed very well through the first three months of the year. We are starting to see some you know in, increasing unemployment cl- claims across the United States. We do expect that to go up quite high. We are very busy stress testing our portfolio for different unemployment rates and different default rates. And quite frankly, we are very thankful today that we've adopted our approach to diversification uh, since day one in the portfolio um, that will help us mitigate our losses uh, rather than placing big bets on you know, our favorite credits. And do you hedge out of the U.S. dollar to Canadian, or is it just a U.S. dollar fund, or, or how do you how do you manage that credit risk? Sure, the vast majority of our investors are are USD investors, so it's a USD fund, USD units invested in in USD assets. Mm-hmm. So there is no currency exposure in the fund, um, but investors, if they're CAD-based investors, Canadian dollar-based investors, they're going to have to factor that in into their own portfolio. I do think we are going to have a fairly deep recession, um, and I think we'll start we'll start to come out of it hopefully in a few months. I think the recovery will be slow. Um, what that means for us as credit managers, and, and particularly credit managers managers with a short duration fund, is we'll be investing and reinvesting collections in a new lending environment within a couple months or essentially within a month we'll be in have a new lending environment what does that mean it means credit quality credit standards will have been tightened pricing to will inevitably go up so the yield expectation going forward yeah. uh for credit will be will be quite strong uh, because essentially prices will be higher uh, and credit will be tighter um so we're, we're quite bullish in terms of what it means for our fund um, and I think quite, if you're a borrower, um, you know, p- plan on credit being harder to get for the next year. Cool. And that's, that's just going to be. Well, that's been a lot of insight into not only the overall retail and, and uh, credit investor landscape in Canada during this crisis, but also digging down into, to Collins, uh, uh, fund and, and how it's investing in these kind of bite-sized portions of, of different loans. It's been really interesting. So. Thanks, Colin. Thanks, Graham, for, for your time. And we look forward to having you on a, another podcast again sometime soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you, James, for hosting and organizing this. It's been uh, been great. And hopefully it's um, it's informative for the people listening.